conversation that we were having about our emotions and this idea of bouncing back. Last week, uh, we talked about anxiety and, and what it looks like to tell ourselves and remind ourselves what is true about us, what is true about God. And I'm super excited um, because it really just gives me the permission to trauma dump onto you. And so um, that is what I'm gonna do. Um, in fact, uh, one of my deepest, darkest traumas um, first started on the first day of third grade. I'll never forget this day. It started off amazing, all right? I showed up to school. I got to be the line leader, okay, which was a big deal. Yeah, you know, you know. I got to be the line, which my last name starts with a W, so it was just like, miracle. Um, so I got to be the line leader my first day. That was also the first year they introduced the PB&J Uncrustables into the cafeteria, okay? Different, right? Amazing. I also, my back-to-school shoe, get this, Heelys, okay? Right, okay, styling and profiling. It was the best day ever until recess, yeah. So you remember how in elementary school you would like go out to recess and you maybe like weren't always the first small, or the first uh, small group, LOL, um, the first like grade or class out to recess? Like you remember how you would get out there and there was always, you know, a couple other classes that were already out there playing, you know, on the, on the monkey bars or whatever. And so I remember first day, third grade, I walked out to recess and I look and there's a group of people already playing kickball. And I'm like, I love kickball. I'm gonna go play. So I pranced on over and I was like, hey, Emily, who would soon become my third grade arch nemesis. Hey, Emily, can I play kickball? I will never forget the following interaction because Emily looked at me with all of the sass that an eight-year-old can possibly possess in her body, and she said, <clears throat> only if you can sing our song. <laughs> okay, Emily, well, what's your song? Emily laughs. Tee, no, our song. Well, Emily, I can't sing your song if you won't tell me what it is. Needless to say, I did not get to play kickball on my first day of third grade. And I acquired an enemy that day, an enemy that followed me for a long time. They, they followed me into middle school. They followed me as, as I was in middle school going through puberty and trying to figure out who I was and trying to make friends, reminding me of, of all failures and things, of who I, who I was and, and lies about who I was. They followed me into high school and as I'm trying to decide, oh, where am I gonna go to college and, and what am I gonna do and kind of like reinventing myself because we all did that at some point in high school, reminding me that I'm not cool and that no one wants to be my friend. <laughs> then I thought I was gonna get away from it and I was gonna move to college and it was gonna be over and it was gonna be done with and then I went to college and they followed me there too. And so now I'm in college and I'm trying to figure out what I'm gonna do with my life and I'm trying to reinvent myself again because I didn't really work in high school and I was still really lame and so now I'm gonna be in college and I'm gonna be cool for the first time and they're telling me that I'm still not cool and that was really not fun. And then I graduate college and I'm like, we're done with that. And I, and I move on. I, I go to work at a church, which was ironically this church and they followed me to this church too and I'm like, can I please get away from you? In fact, they followed me here tonight. They rode with me in my car. And the enemy I'm talking about is not Emily. The enemy I'm talking about is not kickball in third grade. It's not Taylor Swift, our song, in case you missed that earlier. There she is. 
The enemy that has followed me since I was eight years old in the third grade is four words. You don't belong here. This is a lie that I have believed for 17 years. It's a lie that that I was first told by an eight-year-old, but but I have believed it to be true my whole life. I've let it take root into everything that I do, every space that I walk into, every person that I try and have a friendship or a relationship with, every job I've ever applied for, every time I've ever stepped onto a stage like this, these four words are always with me. And, and the, the problem isn't necessarily that I believed this lie when I was eight years old. The problem is that I didn't do anything about it until I was about 21 years old when I finally realized that is the reason I have anxiety when I walk into spaces. That is the reason why I have social anxiety is because, not because I'm afraid of people. Yo, I'm one of the most extroverted people I know. I love people. But it's when I walk into a room full of people, my first thought is I'm not gonna be accepted here because I've been believing that for 17 years. And for all of us, there are lies that we have believed and, and not only have we believed them, but they have taken root in us and we have let them sit there and they have settled and we've gotten used to it. Last week, uh, my friend Chad kind of kicked off this series and he talks about this idea of ants. I love this, ants, automatic negative thoughts. And that when you have an automatic negative thought pop into your head, you're like, I don't know where that thought came from, but it's just sitting in my head now. Maybe it's something like this. This is mine for sure. When we have these ants pop into our minds, the first thing that we have to do is remind ourselves what is true. Because we spend so much time in our lives talking about and thinking about things that are not true. And not only is that not helpful, it's dangerous. Craig Groeschel, who is an author and a pastor from Oklahoma, he writes this way in his book, Winning the War in Your Mind. He says, a lie believed as truth will affect your lie as if it were true. Like it doesn't even have to be true, but if you believe it long enough, if you let it sit there, if you let it take root in your mind, eventually it will start to affect the way you live. It's affected the way I've lived for 17 years that my first thought when I meet a new person is they're probably not gonna like me because X, Y, Z. They're probably not gonna be my friend because of X, Y, Z. They're probably not gonna ask me to come back and speak here because of X, Y, Z. And when we believe these things, even if they're not true, they take root. And the danger is not the lie, it's not the fact that we believe the lie. It's the fact that we let it sit, that we don't do anything about it. I call these emotional injuries. They're injuries that unlike a physical injury, you can't see. Maybe you don't exactly feel it right away, but it's one of those things where you're sitting in your bed at night or you're sitting in the shower and you're thinking about it and you're like, wait, that really hurt. And we all have emotional injuries. Emotional injuries show up in the form of shame or loneliness, isolation, rejection, Maybe for you, you were a kid and and something happened to you, something got said to you and and, and you didn't really have any safe adults in your life that you felt you could process with. And so you never dealt with it and now maybe you're in counseling and you're digging up all these things. You're like, why did something I believed or something that happened to me when I was in the first grade have this deep of an impact? Because it sat there. Or maybe you were in a relationship with someone 
and you put all of your identity, you put everything you were into this person, and then when they were no longer in your life, you have never experienced such isolation, such identity crisis of who am I now? Maybe there were things that were done in that relationship, things that you can't take back, things you didn't ask for, and you're still carrying those things. The reason this conversation is so important is because internal injuries have external consequences. Just because it happens on the inside does not mean it stays there. In fact, I would imagine in a room like this, there's probably a lot of us, myself included, who could say that things that our parents did or said to us, we are still carrying that. Things that teachers said to us or did to us unintentionally even, we're still carrying those thoughts that I have to work, I have to earn my way. That's my thing, I have to earn my way to belong because that's what I was taught. We all have these emotional injuries but, but they do not stay emotional, they eventually come out of us and they affect the people that we live with, they affect the people that we love. It doesn't just stay with you. And I can also imagine in a room like this, there's probably a group of you that's, that you're already kind of checking out. You're thinking like, that sounds great, Jake. That's an awesome conversation for somebody else. That doesn't apply to me. And I would say that's actually the exact reason why this does apply to you. Because we all have emotional injuries. Whether you realize it or not, you do. And the fact that you, you don't recognize that you have one is probably an indicator that you have done a really great job shoving it down and, and trying to outlive it and run away from it and pretending like it's gonna stay in middle school or stay in high school or stay in college, and that's not true. It's not true about you, and it hasn't been true for anyone for thousands of years. In fact, tonight we're gonna look at a passage in John chapter 4, and we, we see that Jesus has this encounter with a woman who had an emotional injury. But to set some context before we get there, in John chapter four, Jesus is in the early parts of his ministry. He's done a couple of miracles, he's taught a couple of things, and he is in Judea, which is the southern part of the nation of Israel. And he is headed to Galilee, which is the north part of Israel. And in between Judea and Galilee is this area called Samaria, where the Samaritans lived. Samaritans was a group of people that was culturally different than the Jews. Jewish people had married non-Jewish people and they collectively as a culture were known as the Samaritans and people who were pure Jews thought less of them. They thought they are less than, they're like half-bloods, they're not as important. They also had different religious beliefs. They thought that, that worshiping God looked different than the Jews thought. They thought that where you worship looked different than what the Jews thought. And so the Jews basically had dismissed this group of people which led this people to feel really neglected so they then had this hatred for the Jews. And so there's this mixed hatred between Jews and Samaritans and you didn't walk into Samaria if you were a Jew. In fact, what's normal to go from Judea to, to Galilee is to walk around Samaria, like over the river and through the woods to go around to get to Galilee because you do not go to Samaria. But in John chapter four, John writes that Jesus had to go to Samaria. Not because he had to go geographically, he had to go because he had a divine appointment with a woman who had an emotional injury and she had no clue. 
And so that's where we're gonna pick up the story tonight in John chapter four. We're gonna start in verse five. This is what John writes. So he, Jesus, came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Verse seven, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? For his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now what's important to note here is that it's completely normal for a woman to go to a well to get water. That was part of your daily routine. You go, you get water, you'd fill up your water jar, you take it back home, you'd wash, you'd cook, you'd drink water, all the things, and then the next day you'd have to go and get water again. But what is abnormal is for someone to want to go to a well to get water at noon, because that's the hottest part of the day. It's kind of like if your dad was like strapping on his cargos and his new balances and saddling up on the John Deere to, to cut the grass at 3 p.m. Not gonna happen. At least it's not gonna happen for me, because it's hot. And it's the same thing. This is so abnormal. This is not culturally normal. And so what this tells us is that there's a reason this woman went to the well at noon. And it wasn't because she enjoyed the sun. It's because she was avoiding something or someone. She didn't wanna be seen by people. And she went to the well at noon not expecting anyone else to be there. But then there is someone there. And it's not just someone, it's, it's a Jewish rabbi. And I'm sure she is so shocked and confused why there's anyone else at the well at noon because I imagine that she's probably gone there every single day and never seen anyone else. But not only does, is he sitting there and is he Jewish, which isn't normal, but he asks her a question, he talks to her. And so she's shocked and she responds like this, verse nine, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink for Jews who do not associate with Samaritans? Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sometimes when we read the Bible, if, if you're like me and, and maybe you, you're used to reading the Bible and, and you're very familiar with who Jesus is, that he's the son of God, sometimes we forget that when we're reading the story, people don't know who Jesus is. Like this woman has no clue that the son of God is standing in front of her. This woman is not aware of, of, of who Jesus is. Maybe she's heard like rumors about this guy, but she has no idea who this guy is. All she knows is that there is a Jewish rabbi that is standing in front of me and he has asked me for water which is so culturally out of the norm. And so naturally she is confused. And then not only does he ask her for water, but then he tells her, hey, if you knew who I was, you would have asked me for living water. Which maybe if you've heard this story before, you know what he is talking about is salvation. What he is talking about is, is not like, a bottle of Fiji from the QT, like I'm gonna give you better water. Like what he's telling her is like, hey, I wanna give you something that is eternal. But that is not at all what she's thinking. And so this is how she responds to that. Verse 11, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answers, verse 13, everyone who drinks this water 
will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I think for a lot of us, when we've heard the story, we just automatically think, oh, he is talking about heaven. He is talking about this living water that is, that is gonna satisfy your soul, that's gonna give you salvation, that's gonna get you to heaven. But what I love about this is that it says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. It doesn't say there's gonna come a day when you will never thirst. It doesn't say sometime in the future you will never thirst. It says today, if you drink this water, you will never thirst again. If you drink of this water today, you will never thirst again. This isn't something that you have to wait to get to heaven to, to partake in. You can have it now. But she still doesn't get it. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Like in her mind, she's hearing this and she's like, oh, okay, 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 I got it, I got it. So if I take your water, your living water, your little QT Fiji water, if I take that, then I can never come to this well again. Like I can never have to leave my house and, and, and go through the hot sun to come and get water here. I never have to avoid the people again. I just don't have to show up anymore. Like I can avoid everything that I've been trying to avoid, but I don't have to do any of the work to get there. Cool, I'm in. Because she was still focused on this physical thing, this physical thirst she had. But you and I both know reading the story, Jesus is not nearly as concerned about her physical thirst as he is about her spiritual thirst. He's not trying to give her another temporary fix to a physical problem. He's trying to give her an eternal fix to a spiritual problem. And I think also in this moment, <laughs> this woman is, is, is just having this surface level conversation that Jesus isn't that interested in. In fact, I think it's actually really ironic that, that he's having this conversation with this woman by the well. I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like Jesus could have intersected her at any point along his Jesus. He knew she, where she was gonna walk. He could have intersected her at any point along her journey from her house to this well. And yet he finds her at this well that, that it says it's deep. In fact, scholars would say that this well was probably about 100 feet deep. And I think there's, there's something here where when Jesus asked her to draw water out of this deep well, he's actually probably not talking about water. He wants to have a deep conversation with her. He wants to have a deep discussion that's beyond the surface, that's avoiding this cover-up crap. He's saying, I wanna know the real you. And so he has this very confrontational conversation with her and, and he says this, Verse 16, he told her, go, call your husband and come back, which feels really out of pocket and random. But then this woman responds, verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Then Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you've had five husbands and the man that you are with now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. You see, this woman did not show up to the well with just an empty jar. She showed up with an empty soul because she has spent years probably 
running around trying to fill some sort of void that she feels with relationship after relationship after relationship. And, and we don't know in the story if, if she was the one who caused the relationship to fail or if, or if the guy caused it. We don't, we don't know whose fault it is, but it really doesn't matter because can you imagine five failed marriages? Can you imagine the emotional damage that would cause you? Can you imagine the, like, the shame that you would feel walking around town, people knowing? Man, she's, that's the girl. She's had five failed marriages. But not only does she feel shame, I bet the guys feel shame too. Because now they are attached to her in some way. And there's this whole mess of an emotional situation that has been caused and she has been carrying that. No wonder she doesn't wanna see people at the well. No wonder she's gonna go out of her way and then walk through the heat to, to, to get to this well, to do something that's very normal, but she doesn't wanna see anyone in the process. Of course she wants to accept this living water if she thinks that it means that she's never gonna have to see people ever again. Of course that makes sense. You would do it too. And I can only imagine that the weight of what she is feeling, even talking to another man that's in her presence, much less a Jew, and she's like, why are you in my space? Why are you asking me these questions? I don't wanna talk about this. That's not what I came here for. But Jesus knows that, that hey, this living water that I'm trying to give you, you actually can't accept it until we talk about this. I've, I've learned in my life that when God is trying to give me a good gift, I cannot accept it if I'm holding on to a bad one. And I have to let it go before I can receive whatever it is that he has for me, no matter how good it is. I have to let it go. And not let it go is move on and shove it and not talk about it. That's the opposite of what this is. I have to acknowledge that it's a thing. I have to stop avoiding it and I have to acknowledge that there is something in my life that has hurt me. And not only has it hurt me, but it's now hurting everyone around me. Because now in this woman, in the wake of her past, there's, there's these five men and this six man in the situationship, whatever that is going on, there's this, these five men that are in the wake of her damage that she has left because she was hurt emotionally. And now you've got these five men and they're hurt emotionally. Who knows like what they have caused other people because I doubt they've talked about their hurt. The reason this is so important, the reason Jesus is like borderline antagonizing this woman to, to bring up something that probably feels really traumatic to her is because hurt people hurt people. When you get hurt, you hurt people. And you don't do it on purpose. I don't do it on purpose but it's because I am carrying the hurt that I have experienced into every relationship. I can't help it. Every room I walk in, there is hurt. There is pain that I'm feeling. I guarantee you there are people in my life who probably think I'm a jerk because I haven't talked to them because I walk into a room and I'm battling this lie of like, they probably don't accept me. I, I don't wanna like say anything stupid. I'm not gonna say anything at all and I'm just gonna like sit here. And I'm like, dang, that guy's a jerk. He didn't say, hey. But really there's this insecurity that I'm battling and now I'm like making people think that I hate them. And I don't do it on purpose, but it's because for 17 years, I didn't even know that that was a lie I was believing. Hurt people hurt people. These internal injuries that we have, these emotional injuries on the inside, they do not stay there. 
they come out. And they affect the people that we love. They affect the people that we care the most about. But this doesn't have to be your story. This doesn't have to be what's true about you. This doesn't have to be the the wake that you leave behind. In fact, the beautiful thing about the story of the woman at the well is that's not her story. If you keep reading, her and Jesus kind of engage in this conversation that, again, kind of gets a little surface level. It feels like she's kind of avoiding this, this whole conversation for a second, talking about the differences between Jews and Samaritans. And, and then eventually, Jesus reveals himself to her and says, hey, I know that, that you and, and Jews, what you have in common with a Jew is that you're all looking for the Messiah. That's me. The one who is coming to, to save the world, that's me. And I, I love the moment and, and that she realizes this. This is what John writes, John chapter four, verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this really be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. What we find at the beginning of this story is a woman who was doing everything she had to do to avoid people, to avoid pain, to avoid feeling shamed, to avoid feeling rejected. And she was doing everything that she had to do to avoid that, to avoid people, to avoid the people who were in this town. And then what we see at the end of the story is that that same woman is now running to those people she's been avoiding because she realizes the gift that she has but she could not receive the gift until she put down the bad one. She could not receive the good gift of the living water that Jesus wanted to give her until she put down her jar. In fact, I don't, I don't really know if this detail about her leaving the water jar is like actually what John intended. Like he may have just been like, oh, she like dropped her water jar and like moved on. It was like a little detail. It's kind of like how in your literature class you like read and it's like, Susie wore a blue sweater. And it's like, well, obviously she's depressed because blue is the color of depression. And you're like, what? She just likes the color blue. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's what John intended. If he's just like, she left the water jar and that's it, move on. But when I read this, there's something significant in my mind of like, I have to put down this so that I can hold this. I have to put down the water jar so that I can have the living water. In this symbolic way, I am putting down the thing that that I'm using to temporarily fix and cover up and avoid and numb myself with so that I can hold the eternal gift that Jesus has for me. TLR, you have to put down your jar so that you can have the living water. So that you can have what the greatest gift that you could ever have, which is a relationship with Jesus, which is freedom, which is healing. But you can't hold it, you can't appreciate it until you decide, I'm gonna stop trying to cover things up. I'm gonna stop trying to avoid things. I'm gonna stop trying to shove things to the side because those things are still gonna haunt you. But what happens when you decide, hey, I'm going to accept healing. I'm going to accept freedom. This living water, yes, it is salvation, but it also is just freedom. And it's healing. 
In fact, I think that the first way Jesus actually was giving this woman living water was calling her out in the first place. I think the first way that he was giving her something eternal to hold onto was giving her the opportunity to confront and acknowledge the crap that was in her past. To acknowledge that, man, there is something that has been so hurtful to me and I'm bringing it to the light. Because while it's true that hurt people hurt people, it's also true that healed people help people. We see the story of this woman that, that when she finally receives this healing and this, this living water that she is able to run to the town and tell everyone about this Jesus guy and then they all go back because they wanna know about it. And I think some of us, we are so caught up in our own crap and our own past and our own injuries that there is no possible way we could ever do anyone else any good because it's all we can think about. It's all we can, we can think about when we walk into a room. It's all we can think about. Like, like it's all I can talk about. So I have to talk about how bad my day was. I have to talk about how insecure I am. And I have to talk about like why I don't wanna go to the party. And it's all about me, 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 because I'm hurt, 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 hurt. But what if you found healing so that you could realize that there are people out there who need it too? And what if Jesus wanted to use you to be that person to help bring healing to somebody else, to help bring help to someone else? We have got to stop shoving things down and avoiding talking about things because it matters. <laughs> and if I can just talk to the guys in the room for a second, man, I know this is true because it's true for me, when I hear stuff like this, I check out because I'm like, that's a girl problem. That's not masculine for me to talk about it. It's masculine for me to move on and shove it down and not talk about it. It is not a guy thing for me to, to bring up the crap in my past. It is not a guy thing. It doesn't, I don't care if it's a guy thing or a girl thing. It needs, it's a thing that we need to do. And if you won't do it for yourself, do it for your future wife. Do it for your future kids so that they don't have to get hurt because you're still walking around carrying hurt that you didn't even know it was there because you have avoided it for your entire life. Man, what if we cut out daddy issues as a generation because we decided that I'm gonna be emotionally available for my kids? Like what if we decided that we don't have to be the, the generation that carries things around because it's not cool, because it's, it hurts my pride, because it's scary, because people are gonna think less of me, because people are gonna think that, that I'm not masculine. Like, what if, what if we were the generation that ended that so that our kids could have a future where they're not carrying our own crap so that they have the space to deal with their crap? I'll say it this way. It is okay to not be okay. But it is not okay to stay that way. It is okay to believe lies. We all do. It is okay that you get hurt. It's okay that you do things that, that hurt. It's okay that things do, people do things to you that hurt. It's okay. But what's not okay is for you to, to try and move on and pretend like it didn't happen. 
What's not okay is for you to, to shove it down, to hide, to put things in the dark. That is not okay. Because there are people who need you. There's a family one day that's gonna need you. And I was sitting watching little kids walk around trick-or-treating last night and I'm just thinking about my future kids and I'm like, there are some kids that are gonna need me to, to, to know that yes, I might not be okay, but I can't stay that way because they need help because they might not, not be okay. And now is the time to do it. Now is the time while you were in college to, yes, it's painful, yes, it's uncomfortable, to dig up all the things that, that have been so deeply rooted in your life, but you have to do it. And it's also not okay because that's not what your heavenly father has for you. He has freedom for you. He has hope for you. He has life for you. And he has healing for you. And he does not want you to walk around holding on to something that he so desperately wants you to bring to him. So we gotta talk about it. And for some of you, you are in small groups here and you're gonna get to talk about that tonight in small group. And man, I get it, it's awkward. I hate talking about my emotions, but it's necessary. For some of you, maybe you're not in a small group. Now might be a time to start thinking about getting in one. But maybe it's a roommate or, or a friend that you really trust or a parent that you're really close to that you can go and say, hey, I need you to help me because there are some things that I'm not even really sure how to talk about, but I need to talk about them. We gotta talk about it. We have to stop avoiding so that we can acknowledge out loud because things that we speak out loud lose power over us. We have to stop avoiding. We have to acknowledge so that we can accept what God has for us. We talk about surrender a lot here. And a lot of times we talk about surrender and, and the idea that we are surrendering our lives to Jesus. But, but tonight I'm wondering what it would look like if we thought about surrender and like, hey, I'm gonna surrender whatever it is that I'm holding onto that's preventing me from, from dealing with all of it. Like I'm surrendering my pride. I'm, I'm surrendering the, the fear that it might hurt. I'm surrendering the fear what people are gonna think about me when I say this out loud in my small group. I'm surrendering all of it. And so in a, in a few moments, we're gonna sing another song and it's a song that we have sung here before. It's called, You Can Have It All. And sometimes I think we sing the song and we think about, yeah, God, you can have like my future. You can have like, you know, the job that I'm gonna have one day. You can have my money, like if you're really brave, like, like you can have all these little parts of my life. But when it comes to our emotions, for whatever reason, we hold it so tightly because for somehow we're scared, but it's like God already knows. So let's just bring it to him. Let's stop holding on to something that's, that's hurting us. Let's let it, let's let him have it. Let's put it back in his hands so that he can take it away and give us something good. And so that's, that's my hope. That's my prayer for this next few moments. And so for some of you, maybe what this next few moments looks like is you're gonna have to sit there and you're gonna have to really think. 
Because maybe you're one of those people, you're sitting there, you're like, Jake, there is nothing in my life that, that feels like, like that. But there is. You might need to do some digging to find it, but it's there. And for some of you, maybe as this whole time we've been talking, you are sweating because you know exactly what it is. It's time to let it go. And if you have never grown up in a church like this, I didn't grow up in a church like this. And when I came to college and, and people would worship in a space like this, I always got really confused why people were like lifting their hands, like putting their hands out. Here's what I've learned. Is that this is the universal sign of surrender. Letting it go. And in my mind, when I do this, it's like my heart is saying what, what I so desperately want to believe to be true. My, my hands are saying what, what my heart wants to be true. That God, I want what you have for me, but I know that I have to let go of what I'm holding on to to have it. Not because you don't, you don't want me to have it, but because I need to be free to accept it. So that's what we're gonna do right now. I'd love to pray for us before we do. Heavenly Father, God, we are so desperate for you, for healing, for freedom, for acceptance. God, there are, are there so many parts of us that are hurting, that are in pain, and for whatever reason, God, we have found safety in shoving it down and, and not talking about it because we're, we're embarrassed or we're scared, we're afraid. God, God, even the smallest things that we believe about ourselves to be true that, that aren't true, God, those things grow into monsters. And so God, tonight, whatever it is, and, and I, I pray that as, as we are singing this next song, God, that you would bring to mind what those things are for us. God, that you would give us the courage to let it go, the courage to talk about it, to stop hiding. Because you are good and you have good gifts for us. Give us the courage to put down our jars so that we can have the living water. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.